You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Now, Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Uh, Well, uh, about several weeks ago, we began looking at the book of Exodus, and uh, we're still in it. And as I said a, a few weeks ago, this is the greatest adventure story ever told. So listen up, children. This is a story for you. Uh, But it's not only that, it's also the greatest redemption story of the Old Testament. It is the great redemption story of the Old Testament. Um, It's sort of the, um, you know, the fulcrum around which so much of the Old Testament revolves. Uh, And it also has spiritual significance for Christianity insofar as it prefigures the the redemption uh, through Jesus Christ. Um, And first we looked at the birth and then the calling of Moses and take note that uh, uh, Moses, uh, as, a, as a younger man, initially fails at trying to rescue Israel on his own. Seeing the need for the rescue, the redemption, tries to take matters into his own hands. This is way back several weeks ago when we, when we read, One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? He answered, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and indeed he would stay there uh, for 40 years. And so we see here that Moses sees the need for the rescue and tries to take matters into his own hands and fails miserably. You know, one Hebrew at a time, and with the first one, uh, he just he's kicked out of Egypt. Uh, and not only had uh, Moses seen the burdens of his people, not only had Moses seen the burdens of his people, but God uh, meets Moses in a bush, and God says to Moses in the wilderness of Midian, I have surely seen the afflictions of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. Uh, and so, of course, it's by God's power not Moses's, that God will rescue his people from bondage, but it's through his servant Moses. After the sort of 40 years of incubation in Midian, the wiser, older Moses to lead his people as a shepherd. Brandon also pointed out last week that uh, Israel's bondage was not only to literal slavery, that, of course, they were literally slaves in Egypt, Uh, It's not only the taskmasters of Egypt that enslave them, though, but uh, each of the plagues that God inflicts upon Egypt were designed to destroy uh, faith in Egyptian spirituality. And any uh, form of worship other than uh, worship of the one true God is, of course, idolatry. And this 
also included uh, the everyday comforts of life in Egypt as well, that even they had as slaves that um, they took for granted and relied upon, the, the Israelites in Egypt. So ultimately, this is uh, not just a story of social justice. Uh, this is a story of eternal redemption. Uh, God had chosen a people for himself, and he remains faithful to them through his covenant promise. Well, today, after uh, the story of the plagues, uh, the plague of the, the firstborn and of the Passover, we now arrive at what you could call a great escape, a great escape of Israel out of Egypt. Uh, this is the proper exodus of the book of Exodus, uh, what we've read today. This is the climax of the, the Egypt narrative and the beginning of Exodus. The, the conflict escalates here. Uh, to its highest point, uh, the tension is, is nearly unbearable, or at least it should be for us when we read it. Basically, what has happened is that after the 10th plague, Pharaoh agrees to allow uh, Israel to leave. And he even allows them to plunder the Egyptians of their goods, of silver and gold and whatnot. And Israel marches out of Egypt as if like an army marching out. And they're making their way out of Egypt and a uh, far way off, but God uh, sovereignly intervenes uh, in two ways. First, for Israel, God sovereignly intervenes by telling Moses to lead his people uh, by backtracking towards Egypt, counterintuitively. Uh, the, and this backtracking tempts uh, Pharaoh to change his mind once again uh, because Israel is closer in sight. And uh, it puts them in a place of sort of strategic vulnerability. Uh, they're in a, in a sort of a rock, between a rock and a hard place, between Pharaoh and the deep blue sea. Uh, and, and I said God sovereignly intervenes at this point in two ways. First, that was for Israel, but for Pharaoh. Secondly, God intervenes by sovereignly hardening Pharaoh's heart. So he stubbornly pursues Israel once again. And he takes his entire army with him, all those chariots. I mean, this would have been like, you know, the U.S. military in terms of a, a great military force at the time uh, to go after, after Israel. And not only all of that that I've said, but also this is an important point. God is in the midst of his people. God is in the midst of Israel. Uh, first of all, in a pillar of cloud by day to lead them. Uh, to, to, to literally follow behind the, the pillar of cloud and by a pillar of fire at night so they can see and continue to march out. And in the cloud and the fire is the angel of God. This is the same angel of God that Moses met at the burning bush. And we're to understand this angel as God himself in the midst of the cloud and the fire. And he is the warrior champion for Israel uh, in this battle scene between Egypt and Israel. Uh, the, the drama of uh, what we've read today eventually resolves when God through Moses divides the sea, of course, the famous scene that we know all too well. You know, uh, get Charleston Heston out of your mind. I mean, it, 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 was, uh, it, was, it was much greater than, than all that. Uh, but the, the Red Sea uh, here uh, most likely is, is not uh, the, the, the Red Sea that we see on the map. It's probably a northern finger of the Red Sea and its delta, but still a big enough body of water that, that the Egyptian army could drown in it. You know, a big enough body of water that 
they're backed into a corner and cannot cross it without divine intervention. And uh, indeed, they walk on, we're told, dry ground. You know, have you ever seen water? Uh, you remember when there was the drought about a year ago and Lake Purdy dried up? You know, it doesn't get dry right away. It takes a while to get that way. It's sort of, it's, it's mucky. But here we read that they're, they're, they're made not only to have the, the sea split in two to create a path, but it's a dry path so they might walk across easily, making it safely to the other side. Uh, and God is in the cloud uh, and not only leading them, but at this point he goes behind them to block Egypt between Israel and Egypt as a, as a defense. They're sort of divine fullback, you know, as it were, keeping uh, uh, Israel safe, protecting them from Egypt so that they might cross to the other side. And then finally, uh, he closes the water up, drowning all of Egypt's army. The main tension uh, or point to highlight in this drama comes in uh, verses 10 through 12, which are the, the very beginning of the passage that we read today. Uh, this is the, 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 the main point of the passage is, is, is answering uh, what happens here in these three verses. If you want to uh, follow along, it's in your bulletin, or you can pull out your Bible. So this is um, verses 10 through 12. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we uh, said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses responds uh, to their concern by saying, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. And indeed they do, you know, even after the, this sort of... Um, uh, grumbling, or, or as I say to my children, whining, you know. Even after this sort of episode of whining, they do stand firm and are quiet. Uh, and uh, salvation comes through the omnipotence of their God. Their God is the Lord, all-powerful. He's not only the God of love, but in this case, he's also the God of judgment too, exacting justice on the Egyptians. And so finally, uh, Again, two very important verses come at the very end. Um, you can kind of see the framework with the, the, be the beginning of the passage that we read here with verses 10 through 12, um, demonstrating the not just anxiety, but sheer fear and a misplaced trust of the Israelites. And then the whole story that I've just retold and we've already read, and finally, we come to these two uh, verses at the very end. They're the only sort of non-narrative verses of this passage. Everything else is telling the story of the drama. And then finally here, uh, at the end of the chapter, it's, uh, we're spoken to plainly in a sort of expositional tone. And they're important because they make it clear what the story is all about, why it's being told. So this is verses 30 and 31. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord 
And they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. In other words, the ultimate point of the story is that Israel uh, would lose their fear, their fear of and dependence on Egypt, including its paganism, and instead see the awesome power of God and fear him. And not only fear him, but also believe in and trust in him, that is to have faith. And not only that, to trust his servant Moses. So, so we see the, the turn of events here. Again, I'll say it. They lose their fear and dependence on uh, Egypt and Pharaoh and instead see the awesome power of their God, the one true God, and fear him. And not only fear him, but believe in him and trust him. That is to have faith in him and to trust his servant Moses. Now, allow me to break this all down for you to an even finer point, okay? The same staff that Moses held in his hand to lead Israel to freedom was also used to close up the sea and exercise judgment on Egypt. The same ground that was made dry for a firm footing for Israel was made mucky to bind up the Egyptians' chariot wheels. The same sea that was divided to bring Israel to safety was closed up to drown the Egyptians. And the same God who led Israel to deliverance from slavery brought his wrath upon their slave drivers. Let's talk about fear uh, and the idea of the fear of the Lord that comes out of this passage here. Uh, just for a few minutes, and then I'll, I'll bring this gravy train in for a landing, okay? Um, I was talking to a friend of mine uh, about um, his being a professor at a university these days. Uh, and he said one thing that's difficult about being a university professor now is the, the informality uh, and what he meant by that is his students view him more as a peer than as a mentor. It's now sort of, it seems to be the sort of default setting without any asking or telling that his students and all students to all professors where he teaches call the professors by their first name. No longer, you know, Professor so-and-so or Dr. so-and-so. It's just, you know, Joe, Billy, Bob, Matt, whatever. Uh, and he said this begins in high school, actually, that so many of the students, this is, this is the way we did it in high school, because uh, maybe the, the, the teachers uh, wanted to appear friendlier to a very tough age to teach to. I get it, you know? But here, my friend, in the midst of this sort of informality, he, he insists uh, that his students call him professor, and by his last name, not his first name. And he says he thinks this is important, because the, the most interesting thing he told me in this conversation was that when he started teaching years ago, he said, my students feared me. When I started teaching decades ago, my students feared me, but now they no longer fear me. Uh, they don't even respect me, he said. And that makes it difficult to grade them and to, to mentor them and to lead them. Uh, and not only that, he told me they, they no longer even come to him with conflicts. Like if they disagree with something he said or a grade, you know what they do? They go to his dean. They circumvent. Uh, the, the, <laughs> even they avoid the conflict and, and go to the dean instead. And good on the deans, he told me, they all say, you know, you've got to go talk to the professor. That'll change, though. You know, that'll change in a dozen years. Um, and this is something I experienced a decade ago when I started preaching at a university. My students loved me for about a month into the semester, and then I gave them their grades, even if they were decent grades. As soon as I started writing on their papers in my department, they said, don't use red pens, use green or purple pens, because a red pen indicates the thought of red traffic lights. And a green pen is like go, you know, F in a green pen, right? 
But as soon as you do that, as soon as I did that, my students, you know, chummy, hey, Mr. Matt, you know, whatever, they, 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 even if they got a decent grade, as soon as I wrote on their paper, um, you know, the implicit judgment, they didn't fear me, they resented me. You know? uh, they, they absolutely resented me, and I was no longer the friend or peer in their mind, uh, uh, but uh, a, a judge, you know, and uh, not only a, a, a judge in a good way, but in a way that they resented. But what I'm saying uh, about fear is, is not quite adequate, what I'm talking about here in terms of, of fear. It's close but it's not enough. Let me read to you a couple excerpts from this book called, uh, I've read this before here at the service, called On Being a Theologian of the Cross by Zach's favorite, Gerhard Ferdi. Um, it's spelled F-O-R-D-E, but you pronounce it Ferdi, like German, right? He's talking about the fear of the Lord, the fear of God. He's a Lutheran scholar, so he starts talking about, he's talking a ton about Martin Luther. So at the beginning you hear him referencing Martin Luther, that's why. The fear of God was not a popular item in Luther's day, just as it is not on today's theological menu. We hardly know uh, what to do with the repeated admonition in Luther's small catechism that we should fear and love God. Indeed, we are big on love, that God is love and that we ought to love him in return, are repeated refrains of almost every Sunday school lesson and weekly sermon. But what of the fear of God? In order to promote a sentimentalized love, we try to excuse God from everything that might cause us to fear him. Or we try to handle the matter therapeutically, making distinctions that turn us inward to examine our subjective attitudes. The fear of God being admonished by Luther, we are told, is not, quote, servile fear, that is the terror of a servant expecting punishment for doing a bad job. Thus we assure ourselves that it is not a being frightened or scared by God, but rather a, quote, filial fear, the fear that a child may have of disappointing a loving parent. It is just a falling short, perhaps, of the expectations of a love that nevertheless remains constant. But such reassurances usually only make matters worse. They turn us inward and force us to wonder what kind of fear we have, if any. And then skipping ahead a little bit. Luther knew there was no way to limit, circumscribe, circum, circumscribe, adequately describe, or even prescribe this fear. Perhaps it is safest just to say that it is the overwhelming sense of awe, and yes, no doubt, even terror upon falling into the hands of the living God. And then finally, fear of God, on the contrary, means precisely letting God be God. True, the fear of God is something of a stranger in the contemporary house of religious experience with its saccharine love piety. Isn't that great? So let's not, uh, on the one hand, uh, make the fear of the Lord therapeutic, to allow, it to, to allow God to be on his own terms and to fear him for what he is with that sense of awe. And on the other hand, uh, nor should we sentimentalize the love of God. Ultimately, I'd like us to uh, again recognize Exodus, the Exodus story's connection to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the Exodus, or deliverance, liberation, rescue, and redemption. 
His is an exodus from uh, the temporary slaveries of this world, yes, but his is also an exodus from the spiritual slaveries of idolatry that bind us up to death and sin. And uh, just as the escape from Egypt meant grace and mercy for Israel, the other side of the coin for Egypt was judgment, or from our point of view, justice. And verse uh, 31 curiously says, Israel believed in the Lord and his servant Moses. Part of the uh, effect of the escape through the Red Sea was to instill a trust in God's chosen servant, uh, the prophet Moses, to listen to him. Uh, And later on, Moses himself in uh, the book of Deuteronomy would go on to say, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. From your brothers, it is to him you shall listen. And I want to say that Moses was ultimately talking about Jesus Christ, the greater servant. And so here's the, here's the bottom line uh, for us with this passage of all that I'm trying to say about it is that the, um, the true and spiritual Israel, that is the people of God, uh, and hopefully that includes us, must not only fear and believe in the Lord, but they must learn to follow the true servant of the Lord. In other words, Jesus Christ. In the same way that they learned to follow Moses, and Moses pointed to a greater prophet to follow him, we should listen to him, Jesus. And so let's not dare to, first of all, therapeutically explain our fear of him and to neither sentimentalize his love. Jesus Christ is indeed God's servant of mercy and grace, the God of love. Just as he stuck with Israel, despite their lack of deserving, God, through uh, Jesus Christ, gives us his grace uh, to those who do not deserve it, just as Israel didn't. But let me talk about the the flip side of that coin, of that equation, of this grace coin, is his judgment. There's no mercy without the possibility of judgment. Indeed, Jesus speaks of a coming reckoning, a second coming, a coming back, uh, and it's, it's what our parable in Matthew's gospel was about today. Uh, to wear the wedding garment is to put on Jesus Christ. And we cannot enter the marriage supper of the Lamb without putting on the love of the Lamb. So, uh, like Moses, who's a much greater prophet than I will ever be, I'd like to say this to you. Whatever is between you and the deep blue sea, you know, whatever that is, whatever the pharaoh of your life is, or the Egyptian army of your life it is, whatever it is that's between you and the deep blue sea, you know, whether it's earthly taskmasters, taskmasters, or uh, or whatever your sort of idolatrous spiritual taskmasters are, you know, your relationships, all of them, whatever it is, uh, what money means to you and how you spend it, um, stress and stress management and related to that work or seeking a calling and vocation in life, school, college, uh, what's your life's purpose, the faith you do or do not have or want to have, and the, the, uh, the attempt to try to be good in a world that doesn't seem to deserve it, that's karma. <laughs> finding happiness, you know, what, what is your identity all about, uh, um, and a sort of desire to sort of stay in the moment continually, but always looking backwards or in the future and constantly staring into the screen and having a fear of missing out, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Whatever your taskmaster is, 
For whatever it is that's between you and the deep blue sea, listen to the words of Moses. Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. And now imagine all of your taskmasters uh, washed up on the seashore as dead. And fear the Lord, and believe in the Lord and his servant Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.